Welcome back to Winter in the Boundary Waters. We are sitting in a hot tent uh, in a campsite in a Boundary Waters lake. Maddie, it's cold. It sure is. <laughs> what does it feel to be, Matthew? Uh, definitely below zero, double digits. My reckoning is between negative 15 and 20 degrees. Starting to warm as the sun has just come over the tree line. And I think it's going to, it hasn't hit us yet, but it's out in the lake. It'll warm us up. How was your first night winter camping? It was pretty good. Um, we're sitting here in a hot tent. So for the first part of the night, we did have a stove going, which really helped uh, keep the tent warm. I was in a two bag system, which kept me very warm last night. Um, so I stayed nice and cozy throughout the night. But getting out of that bag this morning sure was tough. Yeah, we let the stove burn out. And that was nice because, you know, then you just got to adjust to the steady temperature and your body can just kind of rest and sleep versus the swings of stoking the stove all night. But I think uh, you survived and you're smiling. I sure did. Uh, I've been a long time summer canoe guide here in the Boundary Waters. So this being my first go at winter camping, uh, it's something pretty special for me. So yeah, I'm definitely smiling. This is quite an adventure and it is fun despite how frigid it is outside. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a real different beauty out here in the winter, isn't there? It's a, it's almost like a different landscape. What have you noticed about the change? Yeah, in the summer, I find that the landscape is predominantly blue and green. And in the wintertime, there's so much more definition to the landscape. You can see cliffs and rocks um, now that the foliage is gone. And despite it being a very white landscape, there's so much color to it between the grays and the shadows. And it's just a totally different look at the Boundary Waters in the wintertime. Um, it's, it's very pretty. Last night you were talking about how there's a whole other world of recreation in the winter. Uh, you were talking about that from an Ely perspective, and we definitely get that on my side uh, on the east end. But people are coming up for different activities. Yeah, over on the Ely side, it's kind of this gateway to a, a lot of neat recreation opportunities. So a lot of people come up during their breaks or on long weekends to try snowshoeing or to go out on a dog sled trip or to cross country ski either at Hidden Valley or out into the Boundary Waters. And so there's a lot of recreation happening in the winter. And sometimes when we get those flash freezes, people will go out and ice skate too, which is pretty unique to see. It's one of my favorites by far. You know, we talked, Maddie, about how, you know, there's been these major milestones in this campaign to protect the boundary waters from the threat of sulfide mining. Uh, and that allows us to start to shift our perspective a little bit to look at the bigger picture of the health and wellness of the wilderness. And what bigger picture is there and really global threat than climate change? Yeah, well, this winter sure has been frigid, frosty, snowy. It hasn't always been like that. In fact, many friends have told me the previous winters have been pretty snowless. There hasn't been a lot of precipitation. And that leads into the summertime where it's already dry starting out. 
by the time you hit June or July, you're in just massive wildfire season already, which didn't come until September on a typical year. So as we do shift out of this threat um, from copper nickel mining and into climate change and other global issues, we're really looking at a lot of wildfire impacts. And this past summer in 2021, we saw a lot of impact from those wildfires. Well, as we sort of zoom out and think about the health and wellness of the wilderness, we're thinking about climate versus weather. But weather is like the little indicating factors of what is trending over time for uh, our climate. And then, as you mentioned articulately, for these very specific impacts on the wilderness. And I think climate can be this really challenging topic because it feels so global. But as we're going to hear in today's episode, when it comes to tackling a global phenomenon and potentially a global threat, the most powerful impact that an individual can have is on their local spaces. That's where we can do our best work. And for us and for those folks that love the Boundary Waters, this is where we make our local impact. And there's no better example of that than this young woman from Grand Marais that we're going to hear from who has made it a mission since an early age to take on climate change for her own future. Let's hear about that. Hello, I am Olya Wright. I am 16 years old and I am a youth climate activist on the edge of the Boundary Waters. Our trips were canceled last year. We weren't able to go to the Boundary Waters and we felt very lucky we had gotten in for a two-day trip super early in the spring. And we as a family, we don't normally go on two-day trips. We normally go on two-week trips. And so the two days were wonderful and a great opportunity to just get out in super early spring and see what the Boundary Waters was like then. But it, it couldn't replace the loss we felt when we weren't able to go later the summer through the Boundary Waters. And I guess personally, what I asked for my 16th birthday was to be able to go on a trip in the Boundary Waters with my friends. And that couldn't happen because of the fires. So it's, it's a harsh reality that we're facing. And I'm seeing it in all levels of what I try to do for whether it's skiing and the snow disappearing or the snow not being as predictable in the winter, whether it's raining and raining away our snow like it did early this season or the snow coming in October like it did last year. And while I love that, that's not, it's, it's a very different pattern we're seeing. So yes, I guess I would say it's, it affects my personal life and what I enjoy doing in the summer. And it felt, it felt wrong not to go to the Boundary Waters this year. It felt, I felt rather unstable. It's my way of finding kind of peace within myself, kind of feeling free. There's no, you're disconnected from society, but to me that's freeing and healing. And so I think I, I very much felt that lost in particular this year. I am Jessica Hellman. I am the director of the Institute on the Environment and also a professor of ecology, evolution, and behavior at the University of Minnesota. What I think is really interesting and important about young people like Olya is that they remind us what the stakes are. And so, yes, she has hope and she gives all of us hope, but she also gives all of us reason. 
And when young people speak about their concern for their future and their, how they should be allowed and entitled to have a healthy, productive, a safe environment and a, a natural world that's flourishing and surviving, it speaks to all the rest of us that we have an obligation to provide that to her. She speaks with a moral authority that older people have, have a harder time, even scientists like me can't really convey. So it's more of a call to action and an expectation that if we respond to the call of action, we can be successful. So that's more than hope. It's more like duty and opportunity. Uh, or maybe another way of saying it is it's, it's the opposite of despair. It's, it's knowing that when we act, we can do something productive rather than fearing that it is too late. It's not too late. So on the one hand, we look to the boundary waters and we think it's vulnerable because it's at the, it's one of, on one of those edges and it's a special place and the way it used to be and the way that it is, is very meaningful to people. And that's significant. On the other hand, it's also an amazing place where we might have hope that natural processes can act out and there is some opportunity for resilience and turnover because there's such a large area that's been preserved where nature can thrive. So where nature thrives is also the sort of basic ecological evidence would suggest that where nature thrives is where it has its best chance to deal with stressors. First of all, I felt the fires very, um, and the impact when I was hearing about where they were burning very personally. Um, some of the Quetico fires, they burned across um, portages that we um, traversed three years ago. And there was this small lake that we kind of found at the end of a portage, no name, we named it Lone Bell Lake, and it was completely burned. And it had these big pines and big rocks. It was one of the most picturesque lakes I've been on. So. And the same in the Boundary Waters, the lakes that were burning, I know their shores, I paddled on them multiple times throughout my life. And so on that sense, I very personally felt the damage that was done by the fires. But on the climate change end, we had ash falling on our house, on our chicken coops, gardens, ash, um, apple trees. And so I really realized how personal the effects of climate change can be. Of course, I like I had heard about the California fires, um, but they had always seemed so removed. And so it wasn't that I didn't care, but it's just hard to understand the impacts of catastrophes when you're not actually living in the middle of them. And so I was realizing as I was putting together my evacuation plans in case we had to evacuate our house, how little material things there were in my house that I actually wanted to take with me. How obviously my animals and some of my books and things, but it was mostly the woods around my house, my trails, the lakes that were burning in the boundary waters. I just wanted to save all of those memories and all of those special places. And so one thing that's really made me sad looking back on it, and I guess sad isn't the right word, kind of heartbroken, is I realized that some of those lakes are now only preserved in my memories and the memories of other people that have traveled there. And now they're they're burnt and they will grow again. But those shorelines, those old trees that have seen so many people paddle past, they're there no more.
Yeah, so when we hear from Olia, Maddie, you know, it's, that's super localized. And then when we just kind of zoom out, we get like the University of Minnesota, which is uh, a bigger entity, certainly much bigger than uh, our Arrowhead region. But then we go even bigger to a place like Washington, D.C., an international work on climate. And what's amazing is that folks who are making their life work to figure out how we can adapt as humans to climate change also have connections right here to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. So my name is Ana Maria Claymeyer. I uh, live in the Washington, D.C. area in a town called Alexandria, Virginia. I grew up nearby here in Arlington, just up the river, up the Potomac River, and have lived here most of my life, although I've spent um, some years living abroad. I grew up in a bicultural, multicultural family. My mother's Cuban, and she moved to Colombia when I was a child, and so I spent much of my childhood also down there in, in Colombia. My US-based childhood was, was mostly here in, in Arlington, Virginia, um, except for the time that I would go up to northern Minnesota with my dad and my brother. We spent our summers up there when I was growing up. I am an environmental lawyer. I focus mostly on climate change. I've been doing that work for about 20 years now. I've also worked on international waters, which basically means like any bodies of waters that, uh, that, that include more than one country. That's an area that sometimes crosses over with climate change. I feel compelled to, um, to pay attention to what the connection is between that place, the beautiful boundary waters and, and climate change. I think you know the, the first thing that we can all do is pay attention and just um, open our awareness and um, and as, as painful as it can be, because I, I, there is some pain and fear around, oh my God, what's happening? Painful as that is, or as scary as it is, I do think because of our love for the place that in a sense, we owe it to, to that place. It's just like any relationship. When you love a person and they're at risk of harm, you pay attention, you listen, you observe. And then from there, I, the question I'm asking myself now is, what more might I be able to do to save the Boundary Waters campaign? Because I've asked myself that question, when I see one of their emails, I spend, you know, I take a few more minutes to read the email, which, you know, because, you know, sometimes I just, you just, we just don't have the time, but I care. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to take this two minutes. I'm going to give these two minutes to this. You know, and I hope that from there and the relationship with Olia and um, and with others, I have family up in Grand Marais. They are interested and engaged on the issue. I talk to them about it. And I think that, you know, all of, with all of our attention um, and all of our care, you know, then we'll eventually begin making those connections that will build the resilience that, that we need and that the place needs. I'm hopeful. I'm an optimist. I know a lot about this issue, the climate change issue, not so much about how it influences the Boundary Waters Canoe area and, you know, and the broader area, the Superior National Forest, but I'm learning. Um, one of my favorite things to do as winter changes into spring is to go lake skiing in the Boundary Waters because 
once all the lakes get a crust in this, um, as it start, the air temperature starts to warm, you can skate ski for miles across um, the snow. And so we will go in and do long 30K, 20K, 50K loops in the boundary waters going into some of our favorite lakes so that we can access on skis, um, but making loops across portages and across the lakes in the winter. And that's one of my favorite ways to go skiing um, just because I'm in the Boundary Waters, which feels like home, and I can see all of the trees and the lakes in different seasons than I do no during the summer. And I'm skiing, which I also really love, so it's a perfect combination. I see that every one of us has three spheres of influence, right? The first sphere is ourselves, and we have an immense amount of influence over ourselves and, you know, how we live our lives. The next sphere is our community, families, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors. And we have a, a, a little bit less influence there, right? Because, you know, you can't change everybody's mind or everybody's behavior. But in our own way of engaging with the world, we share with people one option of how to live the life in our environment. But also by teaming up with people, you know, by being part of that community, we can have a bigger impact on the world. And then, you know, the third sphere of influence is that, that, that bigger global level. And I personally work on that level. You know, the way that I do it is maybe more daily than, than other people, but everyone has um, a little bit of influence over that bigger, the, you know, the policies. So for, take, for example, Olia, I mean, she has chosen to engage at that political level through her community you know, she, she created this group of friends and that group goes to these meetings, sort of local and county level. And I think even she's looking at state level engagement to influence the rules and the policymaking that while someone like Lilia has a little bit of influence and maybe more because, you know, it's constant, when she's able to change something through that, the impact is huge, right? Because um, those decisions then uh, apply to to a bigger sphere of people and, and activities. Um, so to your question about how I think about my global you know, work, what my life and my work is dedicated to is trying to influence those policies and have that, that sort of bigger swath. But it's equally important to me to pay attention to and to kind of uh, water the garden of my community activism and engagement and my own individual daily life. Realize as I'm telling you that, like, whew, that seems like a lot. <laughs> it does seem like a lot. But my feeling, my deep feeling about this is that when we see all those three together, there's a harmony. And when we live through all three of the spheres, there's this harmony that's created that just like in music kind of like fills us with the energy and with the light. And that's the, the momentum that we need and that the world depends on for us to evolve into the future that we want to, ha to have for ourselves, for our communities, for, for our planet. One thing I love about being out here with you, Maddie, is our experience and our connections to the wilderness spanned east to west and north to south as far as the Boundary Waters goes. Uh, we both 
have these histories of guiding, we have this deep relationship with the wilderness, and this thing that I'm really loving, how we're coming together for our passion to protect it. And you just took a big step deepening your relationship with the wilderness by being out here in the winter. And I know we still got a lot of things that we're going to still dive into around enjoying and appreciating this space, but I want to know, are you going to come back out? I think after this experience, I will definitely plan to come back out here in the winter time. Um, whether it's coming out again for a winter camping trip, going out and getting adventurous with dog sledding, or trying to do some other little less conventional Boundary Waters winter activities. This experience has been pretty impactful on me, and I've really enjoyed this first day, so I can't wait to see what the next couple of days hold. But I'm also interested to hear from some other first-time winter campers and see what their experience was like. Check it out. Stay tuned for next episode. <laughs> <laughs>